In a week when Ukraine appeared to have turned its narrative to one of success, destroying a valuable Russian tank transporter ship in Crimea, reality appears to be a second winter under sustained, systemic Russian bombardment. After weeks of relative calm, Russian forces ushered in the new year by pounding Ukrainian cities. Russia has launched one of its biggest aerial attacks on Ukraine since the war began, killing at least 18 people in a wave of deadly explosions across the country. While most of the world's attention has been gripped by the war in Gaza, it's a reminder that the war in Ukraine continues without an end in sight. It comes at a critical moment for Kyiv, as continued military and financial support from the US and EU remain in doubt. Welcome to Powerplay, Politico's interview podcast, where I talk to some of the most influential figures on either side of the Atlantic. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in this edition, I speak to the Foreign Minister of Latvia, Christianis Karinc whose country shares Ukraine's pain, sitting in the Baltics, where Russian aggression is too close for comfort. Karens also served as Latvia's prime minister from 2019 to 2023. Now he's making his pitch to lead NATO when Jens Stoltenberg stands down as secretary general later this year. And he'll tell me why he thinks it's time for NATO to have a new broom. Well, we've had NATO general secretaries coming from a handful of countries for many years. Maybe it's time to say, you know, countries such as Latvia, we have been now, uh, this year we're coming on 20 years as a NATO member, we're certainly not a new member. And when it comes to commitments, we are about 2.4% of our GDP investing uh, into defense uh, this year, which is important, I think, for any Secretary General to be able to speak to those members who are not yet doing it. Later, I'll be joined by my power panel of Politico's top experts to dissect what my guest had to say. It's a bit like running for the Pope. You can't, you've got to show interest, but you can't be too interested. You can't campaign, campaign too much. But if you don't campaign at all, you won't get the job. I think until it's done, it's not done. But um, currently, I would not bet on a former or current prime minister from a small Baltic country. But first, let's hear my conversation with Christianis Karint. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's my pleasure. You've talked about Russia having an imperialist fueled ideology that will likely continue even after the Ukraine war and that NATO needs to be ready to combat that with resolve and with investments in defence. But isn't the hard truth that as long as Vladimir Putin remains in office, the threat is going to be there and it will test what NATO can achieve in practice? I think it's important for us to understand that what we're up against is a serious, broad and long-term threat. Russia, under the leadership of Putin, has proven that it is willing and able and uh, ready to go to war against a neighbor for uh, the old-fashioned reason of acquiring territory. So denying Ukraine's right to existence, uh, uh, saying that Ukrainians are not a people, it's not a language, it's not a nation. These are all um, very standard sort of 150-year-ago arguments that are still very much alive within the thinking uh, in the circles around Moscow. And uh, from our analysis and my analysis, it's not only because of Putin. It is Russian thinking, uh, Russian elite thinking, which is being fully accepted generally by the population uh, with a very, very broad support. And that means that 
when we look at the war in Ukraine, the Ukrainians are now on the front line and they need all of our support because they are the ones defending Europe. They are the ones defending our values and our way of life. Nonetheless, there are divisions in the Zelensky camp about how to talk about the end of the war and what the terms of that might be. So how do you think the conflict ends? And do you see any prospective settlement, whether we like it or not, that would allow Russia to keep some of the gains that it has made since 2014? In my view, the war ends when Ukraine is liberated, fully liberated. That's when the war ends. Uh, If the Ukrainians were to say something different, well, I have not heard anything to that extent. It's the same if, you know, if we remember the simple analogy, a burglar comes into your apartment and is in your kitchen and is trying to get into your bedroom. Uh, Well, you want them out of your bedroom, but you also want them out of your kitchen. And the fact that they're in your kitchen and maybe throwing pots and pans around does not give them a right to be there. They actually uh, need to be thrown out of the apartment and your apartment needs to be set back in order in order for life to continue. Well, here we have the same. We have the aggressor in a larger part of Ukraine, now already in a much smaller part of Ukraine, but still in parts of Ukraine. Uh, They would need to be pushed out because there's no other way Russia only understands force. Uh, Ukraine understands that. And we on the NATO side also have to simply accept that as a fact and not be afraid to continue to build up our own resolute defenses so that once this war ends, that Russia never looks in our direction when it is uh, thinking or hoping to expand or to try to re-expand its empire. Because after the war ends, uh, certainly there's no indication that Russia then would change its ways. I'm going to come on to NATO in more detail later, if I may. But I was thinking while you were talking of an article written by my colleague, Matt Kaminsky, and he was making the point, writing from a Washington perspective, that there's an air of unbelief that has crept into considerations of where the war goes and optimism about its conclusions, particularly the idea that all of the territory occupied by Russia could be liberated and that would be a full restoration of the borders pre-2014. And that might include forfeiting Crimea or some of the territory taken since 2014 in order to achieve a peace deal. Your response? Well, the problem with uh, this is that that would be an illusory peace. In democracy, we assume if when there's a conflict that you sort of you step back a negotiation to create negotiating space. But Russia has proven uh, again and again that when you step back, they step forward. They perceive that as weakness, not as cleverness, or uh, you know, they, they simply do not share the same values that we have. And in terms of time and perseverance, my own country was occupied for 50 years. I grew up in the US in the 1970s and 1980s. And the talk of restoring Baltic independence, we Balts always talked about this. The U.S. government and the British government always supported this position as well, never acknowledging the illegal incorporation of our countries into the Soviet Union. But for many years, I think many people, rational people said, well, this is, you know, it's, it's a nice pipe dream. Uh, but here we are 30 years, uh, more than 30 years post-independence. We are in the European Union. We are in NATO one simply cannot accept uh, the terms that autocrats and dictatorships allot. Let's come back to that point about the durability of the alliance. But politically speaking, right now, there is 
intense reliance on the US and on Europe as the two big blocs supporting Ukraine. What makes you so optimistic that Europe and the US will continue to support Kiev financially and militarily in a meaningful way? Washington hasn't sealed the deal yet on continuing US aid. We're hearing voices in Congress admitting that there's a tiredness among voters and we're in election year where, as you rightly say, it's a democracy, it matters what voters think. Given this constellation, I would ask why you're still relatively upbeat about these deals coming through. Well, it's in our inherent self-interest. It's in the self-interest and the preservation interests of all European countries and the United States to not relent because the costs of relenting would be much greater than the cost of continuing support. Because right now, we're at a situation where we as NATO are not at war. We are only supporting Ukraine, which is at war with Russia, although I, I think formerly Russia has never declared a war. They still call it, uh, legally speaking, a special military operation. It's like doublespeak from uh, Orwell's book uh, that I read when I was when I was in school. But uh, if one thinks that it's difficult or expensive now, try to imagine the situation where NATO were actually dragged into a direct war with Russia, which uh, is a potential outcome if Russia is not stopped in Ukraine. You cannot rule it out from Russia's point of view. And right now, it only costs us money. Okay, ammunition, but in the end, it's it's only money. Uh, Money are not lives. And money is much, much cheaper today to support Ukraine rather than dealing with the consequences of not having supported Ukraine when we still could have. We now have the contest to head NATO heating up. You yourself are a contender. I think it's a fair assessment of this in terms of sporting bets and odds that you're up against a favourite, the outgoing Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, who has the backing of a lot of major NATO countries. Do you think you're the underdog in the race? I I don't really see it right now as a, as a race. It's it's a peculiar uh, situation. At any rate, this is one of the jobs where there's no you know clear uh, application procedure. And it's a fairly complicated negotiation among 31 members uh, who need to agree. But uh, what's clear is that uh, the next general secretary of NATO has a hell of a job cut out. First of all, uh, to live up to the standard that uh, Jens Stoltenberg has said, I think he's done an outstanding uh, uh, job these years. And it's especially um, become very visible since the start of the war uh, in Ukraine. But uh, we need someone who can keep all 31, soon to be 32, once Turkey and uh, Hungary uh, ratify Sweden's succession, to keep everyone on the same page and to keep that unity of purpose. And I think one of the main uh, unit or the, the purposes or goals of NATO in the coming years is to work out, develop, and then implement a process of uh, containment of Russia. Uh, We will have to live with uh, a potentially aggressive Russia for, I would say, the next generation. Uh, I don't want to, um, you know, to to say, is it 20 or is it 30 or is it 40 years? But for the foreseeable future, simply accept that fact 
and then to work out a, a strategy of containment. Well, I do get that, but I'm trying to understand from you where you see your points of differentiation in the way you're setting out your stall to be a candidate for this leadership role. As you point out, it's a bit of a convening job, but there must be some differences in the way that you would approach it as opposed to others. I'm wondering if you would style yourself as the ultimate Russia hawk in the race. No, uh, I am a very pro-democracy and pro-NATO. Mark Rutte, I've I've worked with him for many years, know him very well, highly respect him. He's a very, very competent politician, also proven himself in politics, uh, no doubt about that. But I, I would ask the question, well, we've had NATO general secretaries coming from a handful of countries for many years. Maybe it's time to say, you know, countries such as Latvia, we have been now Uh, This year, we're coming on 20 years as a NATO member. We're certainly not a new member. And when it comes to commitments, we are about uh, 2.4% of our GDP investing uh, into defense uh, this year. And we're heading uh, up to 3% in the next three years. Uh, We'll see uh, if maybe we can attain it even faster. So as in our support for Ukraine, we sort of put our money where our mouths are. We are, you know, about one, a little over 1% of support for Ukraine all in all. And in terms of our military investments, uh, we are also investing in our own defense, which is important, I think, for any Secretary General to be able to speak to those members who are not yet doing it. And are you trying to say politely that your country has paid a lot into the pot relative to the size of Latvia and that other countries, the Netherlands, possibly Germany, might come into the category that you're considering to be a bit stingy and therefore their representatives shouldn't get the job? No, no, I think that we, we simply have to keep our eyes open and look at what is in our collective best interest. Well, that's very diplomatic. I've just turned quickly to my screen and looked at the history of NATO general secretaries. And I think we get to ballpark 13 figures, all men who have led this defence alliance. Isn't it time to have a woman? Uh, that That's, I mean, that's that's broadening the, the question even further. I certainly would say I think it's it's time to look maybe a little broader than the country base where we have been uh, uh, looking at for many years. And, you know, uh, there are all kinds of possibilities also, of course, if, if uh, you would want to look at gender as well. So Kaya Kallas from Estonia is also in the contest. If you stepped aside, her chances would be higher, wouldn't they? Uh I, I really don't know uh, because uh, it's it's not a, a question of one versus the other versus a third. It's a question of who would right now in the overall circumstances be best suited for the job. And I think this is what we need. We need to find uh, and decide upon the person who is best suited for the job at present. Your counterpart in Rome, the Italian Foreign Minister Antonio Tajani, is calling for the EU to form an army to be peacekeepers in the world. He said we need a European military. It's a bit of an old chestnut, this one. But it does focus us on how Europe should organise its defence and security. What's your view? Well, we've we've had this debate uh, in Europe for I don't know, five, uh, six years at, at least. Uh, it's been called under you know, strategic autonomy that Macron was coming from France with this idea. And it actually goes further back. Um, I happen to be reading uh, the Federalist Papers of 1787, uh, Hamilton J. And... Well, if you're reading all of them, it's going to be quite a long job. Yeah. And uh, well, no, no, there's there's only about 90 of them. They, they actually, they're, they're a quick read. 
but it's a debate which is not for the first time in the history of democracy. What is the best way to pool resources and how can one project strength in the most logical way? Well, the United States 200 some 30 years ago decided that a federal government was the best choice and they went for that in Europe. Uh, this debate almost started, it never really did, and then it just completely dwindled out. So Europe is currently showing no signs of heading towards any kind of federalism. And to have an army without a federal government is very difficult to imagine. But having said that, if all European NATO members invested at least 2% of their GDP into their defense budgets, then we would have a combined military uh, capability, which would make us a much more serious NATO partner and uh, would uh, be a much, how should we say, a stronger ally for the United States, which is the underpinning uh, power uh, within NATO. That is, we are still collectively in Europe punching below our weight. If in the Baltics we're punching above our weight, in, in all of Europe we're still below our weight. So we still have a lot of potential uh, in the rest of Europe to increase our military capabilities. And that would make the democratic alliance of NATO that much more capable. Before we let you go, because I think you actually came out of a cabinet meeting to talk to us. Uh, yes, uh, I did. But uh, it's it's all part of the job and actually quite enjoyable speaking with you. Well, one thing we like to do on PowerPlay is to get powerful people uh, to talk to us. And I think if they have to leave a cabinet meeting, it rather proves the point. You've done the job for us. We'll let you get back in there shortly. But I did want to ask you, because this is Politico, we're all about understanding Brussels and the Beltway and its animating spirits. How surprised were you to hear that Charles Michel was announcing his departure as president of the European Council and standing for the European Parliament. That was a bit of a moment. I have to admit that took me a little bit by surprise. I know Charles Michel uh, uh, quite well. Um, and uh, of course, his you know the only thing that we know is that uh, in uh, about one year, his term would be over anyway. So he would need to do something else. Uh, I think it's interesting that he wants to run uh, for the European Parliament. And uh, it's it's even more interesting that he's announcing now that he's uh, going to do this. The elections are only in, in June. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, it's a good heads up, and it, it, but it does create a difficulty because I have participated in the European Council last time around. It took us three, four, five days, I think, to negotiate uh, the top jobs. And that was after the parliamentary elections. So it's it's very difficult to imagine how an agreement could be taken before the elections on only one job and who would really want a job which would be maybe for one year maybe not because uh, it makes some um, you know inside the Brussels bubble it's a peculiar uh, challenge but uh, I certainly wish Charles uh, all the success I think he's been a quite good uh, council president. I think there are some rumours going around in Brussels that you might actually fancy heading back there and if you did so then that would mean that your fellow Latvian, the EU Trade Commissioner, would have to go because it's a bit of a one-in, one-out system. You think you might be meeting up with us next time in Brussels rather than remotely in Latvia? Uh, look, politics is, is a fickle business. Um, if you would have asked me a year ago what I've been thinking, I would have been thinking, well, I'll continue to be prime minister if I do well in the elections. I did well in the elections, but we needed a change of government and I decided to to foster a change of leadership within my party as well. Uh, so I can certainly close no doors today, uh, but I can say that as a politician, I, I greatly enjoyed being prime minister. I, I'm 
very much uh, finding a plenty to do as, as foreign minister. Uh, but, um, you know, who knows uh, what tomorrow will bring. So it could be Moulin Freet next time we speak. Well, I'm, I'm happy to meet with you at, at any time and in any circumstance. Last question before you get back into that cabinet meeting. We always ask our guests, once we've put them through the mill, who they would like to hear on Power Play. Who would you listen to if we got them on the podcast? Well, I think it would be interesting. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Viktor Orban, and he's, uh, you know, in many ways a controversial figure. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I've known him for many years and spoken with him. I think uh, that would be an interesting person uh, for you to speak with. I think many people would have a great interest in hearing how he explains uh, his country's um, decisions and uh, the future of, of Europe from his point of view. Well, I think that's an excellent idea. It would certainly be lively. You can consider that bid in and we will count you, I hope, as a loyal listener. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much. Coming up on Power Play, I'll be speaking to two of Politico's leading experts in defence and security. I'll be asking them if they share Christianis Karin's optimism about Ukraine's fate and how does NATO need to change. Welcome back to Power Play. Well, to take stock of my conversation with Christianis Karins, I'm joined by Matt Kaminsky, editor-at-large at Politico in Washington, D.C., and Jan Chensky, senior policy editor at Politico in Europe. And both of them have extensive experience of covering Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. Hi, both. Hi, Anne. Hi. So, Matt, Karen's chances of succeeding Jens Stoltenberg as NATO Secretary General have been written off, frankly, by a lot of observers. Mark Rutter from the Netherlands, currently the hot favourite. But what about the case that he was making to us there in the interview, that it is time for a country like Latvia that pays more into the pot relatively than bigger members and is really in the eye of the storm in, in the Baltic states uh, vis-a-vis Russia should get the leadership this time round? Listen, they're going to make the Baltics and the Easterners in general are going to keep making the case until the call is made, which is going to be sometime this spring, presumably before it has to happen before the Washington summit in the summer. I think they're basically angling for something. And if you put them on truth serum, they will say, we know the big players in NATO are probably going to go with a known quantity like Mark Ruta. That's where Washington is trending. If you're thinking ahead to Donald Trump, you probably need an adult in the room who knows how to deal with a big personality like Donald Trump. And Ruta's main Achilles heel is the fact that Netherlands is not above that 2% threshold. And that's always going to be a very effective pressure point for the Balts. But I don't think the alliance and the legacy members, so to speak, are ready yet to go with a Easterner or, or a small country uh, PM. They're quite odd, these NATO races, Jan, aren't they? In the sense, it's, it's kind of by acclamation. You can put your hand up because you want to do it. Our guest clearly is still bashing away in the hope that he might get past Mark Rutter. The other person in the race that he would need to defeat is Kaya Callas, who would be a female candidate, would be the first woman to head NATO if she did get the job. So how do you read that trade-off of interests? It's a bit like running for the Pope. You can't. You've got to show interest, but you can't be too interested. You can't campaign campaign too much. But if you don't campaign at all, you won't get the job. Callas does have some advantages. She's a head of government, which is a higher rank, and she's a woman. 
And Estonia is even further up the spending food chain uh, than Latvia is. And it has very strong alliances with the rest of Scandinavia. It, she faces the same problem in that it's a small country that's a frontline state with Russia. And so that would uh, run into a lot of resistance from the traditional big countries. But uh, she's an interesting candidate as well. I feel the Katla's balloon is getting a little bit smaller, uh, partly because of questions about her husband's business dealings in Russia. And I don't. Th- I think she comes across as a little, say, uh, not the easiest to, to get on with. And, and you're basically running for chairman of the board. I would say a couple of dark horses. I think Ruta is obviously the out-and-out favorite. The Danish PM is is someone who's been mentioned uh, in the past, and I think really the the wild cards here are Hungary and Turkey. And does Orban want to cause mischief with this, the way he was doing with uh, uh, has is doing with aid to Ukraine and Turkey, as you saw with expansion to Sweden and Finland? You never know quite what he's going to do and what he would want in return for his support for whatever the outcome. Uh, most of the current members. Uh, unite around. So I think until it's done, it's not done. But um, currently, I would not bet on former or current prime minister from a small Baltic country. Jan, he was clear that NATO needs to redouble efforts to support Ukraine. Uh, what view did you take of that? Because in one way, he seemed to me to be very optimistic about the conduct of the war. And at the same time, he was very clear that it was worth, if you like, keeping going, keeping that investment and backing for Ukraine going. What did you read out of that? Yeah, I mean, he's he's pushing the line that Ukraine really has to be able to win the war. And so there's it's part of a broader push. You see that especially from the other Baltic countries as well. They feel existentially threatened by Russia if Russia ends up prevailing in, in Ukraine. And if you look at the spending from all the Baltic countries, the percentage of GDP that they're sending to Ukraine, it's sort of the top ranks of all of Ukraine's allies. And he made it pretty clear in the interview as well that anything other than an outright Ukrainian victory is a defeat, that you cannot come to a ceasefire or a temporary agreement with the Russians because the Russians will simply see that as a weakness, pause, and then hit again. And so uh, he's setting a very high bar for what is success in Ukraine. But geographically, where those countries are, they don't really have a lot of other options. I would also add that clearly this is a war of perception and messaging as much as what's happening on the ground. And clearly, Ukraine has not been winning for the last, let's say, nine months. And that is why uh, someone like Vladimir Putin is sounding more confident I can maybe wait out the West. They're divided in Europe. They're divided in Washington. Let's wait until Trump may come in, in uh, into power in 11 months here. And I think what you're hearing from some of the Eastern Europeans, you're also hearing it from Zelensky very strongly, is like, wait, stop. This, this is, these are the stakes are still huge. And by the way, Ukraine is doing better on the ground than we realize. Russia can't use its port in Sevastopol. The Black Sea is now navigable for trade. And don't lose this in the media if you're actually not losing it on the ground. But Matt, just to stay with you for a second, do you accept that? Because the last piece of big substantial piece that you wrote about the perception of the conflict in Washington and that bit of a sort of frozen sense in Congress and perhaps a bit of a, a sagging commitment and we're going into a crucial election year that is going to magnify any differences around this. Do you accept that 
view that we are hearing there from the foreign minister in Latvia is making any difference to doubts about how long is this war going to go on and what's it really going to cost and are we still in for it? I think what's going to have to happen is both both in Ukraine, by the way, where Zelensky was hoping for a quicker war, and here in, in Washington and in Brussels, where everyone was hoping this could end in 12, 24 months, now both Kiev and the West must come up with a long war strategy and have to really plan out what that means for them uh, in terms of the resources that Ukraine needs, but also how to make it politically palatable. For Zelensky, that means how do you get the Ukrainian people to accept a big draft? How do you get them used to the idea this is going to take years, not months? And similarly, in uh, Western Europe and, well, the EU and the U.S., how do you get uh, the publics here to accept that this is going to take lot longer than we thought. Yeah, I think that the issue is that Europe uh, especially has to switch to a sort of a permanent level of higher defense spending, essentially uh, going back to a Cold War style of thinking where you need to increase defense budgets, increase defense production, start reinvesting in research in tanks, airplanes, missiles, refurbish bomb shelters, which have been abandoned for generations. And understand that this is something which faces us for years to come. And I think the only thing that could shift that would be a dramatic political change inside Russia, a collapse of the of the Putin regime that would allow a rethink and maybe a, a return to the sort of post-Cold War way of uh, setting up our economies and defense industries. But barring that, this is a very long-term change. The ones who are least prepared for the long war are currently the Europeans, the EU, in terms of being willing to pay the price for it, really taking actual steps to ramp up defense production, and really realize that there's a major uh, land war on the continent. And by the way, this would be the most, um, the best insurance policy doing that, accepting that there is a long war in Ukraine, would probably be the best insurance policy against Donald Trump coming in and and saying, you know, I'm going to pull out of NATO, uh, you guys defend for yourself, because I think that would make the argument very effectively on my side of the Atlantic, that no, the Europeans are serious. And this is not uh, another case of, of, you know, free riders uh, in the EU uh, taking advantage of American largesse. So let's go there. What difference do you both think it makes if we are looking, and I notice people increasingly saying, oh, that can't really happen, can it, about Trump too, to, well, it could very well happen. And the foreign security, big picture geopolitics is got to be prepared for that eventuality. And how much do you think that would upset the apple cart here for whoever is the next NATO general secretary? Europe is a very rich continent and it can easily afford to stand up to Russia. But it's a question of political will, which is something that's not evident yet, and also much closer cooperation among European countries. And if you look at the willingness to spend on, on defense and to revamp militaries, the closer a country is to the border with Russia, the greater that willingness. So if you're talking uh, Latvia or Poland or even Germany, there the willingness is large and growing. If you look at Portugal or Spain, not so much. But there would have to be a rethink on the whole approach to European defense if the Americans leave. I think I've left the hardest exam question last for Matt, which is what would 
a Trump presidency mean for the way that the war in Ukraine ended or, or indeed continued? I think you can say much more clearly what the Trump campaign is going to do uh, than what a President Trump would do. In a campaign, you say what you think plays the best with your uh, core constituencies and helps you win an election. And clearly, they think that a more isolationist America first message works well for them, especially in the in the primary campaign. I think once Trump comes into office, I think some of the alarmism underestimates both the complexity of what a president faces, but also the complexity of American government. A couple of things. One, President Trump does not like to be seen as a loser. Uh, having kind of Kiev uh, fall to a you know, third world economy in Russia would not look good. Uh, remember, President Trump is the one who sent arms to Ukraine after President Obama denied Ukrainians arms for many years when this war really started in 2014. Second thing is the Republican Party, the majority of the Republican Party, the majority of the Senate, and still the majority of the Congress, including the majority of the House caucus in the Congress, supports continued aid to Ukraine and certainly supports NATO. You've had senators try to put in legislation that would forbid the president from unilaterally withdrawing from, from NATO. So I think things just get more complex once you are in power. There's many other things going on. And I wouldn't assume that, you know, the day after inauguration, the whole post-war architecture collapses. Thank you to both Matt and Jan for their insights there. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, next week, I'll be heading to the Swiss Alps for the annual get-together of business leaders, politicians, NGOs, tech supremos and hangers-on at the World Economic Forum in Davos, where we're not just bringing you one episode of Powerplay, but four from our hard-working team. So please join us there starting next Tuesday for exclusive interviews and insights from the World Economic Forum's annual shebang. And if you want to get all of our episodes immediately when they publish, go ahead and follow Powerplay wherever you're listening. We're available on all major podcast platforms. And while you're at it, I'd be thrilled if you gave us a rating. The producer in London is Peter Snowden. The executive producer in Berlin is Christina Gonzalez. I'm Anne McElvoy. See you next week from Davos. <laughs>